Hey, what's up, everybody? It is your girl, Leah Flores with Between the Sheets, and I am so stoked to be here once again. I know it's been a minute for for you guys, but, uh, you know, life, business, everything just kind of gets in the way, but I always want to try to stay consistent and show up for you guys. So very excited to be here. Very, very stoked about uh, my next guest that we're going to have on. And uh, I will introduce her in just a second. I want to remind you guys that on this show, we get very, very intimate on business, life, relationships, health, and the journey thereof. It is my mission to give my listeners the tips, takeaways, things that can actually help them in their life, their business, their relationships that they can implement right away to, you know, whatever endeavor they're in their life, their journey, their relationships, their business. So I want to go ahead and kick it off, you guys, and bring this guest right on. Let's go ahead and do this. Okay, guys, so who do I have? Who is my special guest on this particular episode on Between the Sheets? And, you know, we, we, when we were chatting back and forth, uh, she, when I asked her about her life, and she said, it's twisted as fuck. And I was like, you know what? Like, hmm, I think that's going to be the name of this next podcast, Twisted as Fuck, because aren't we all just a little bit fucked up? <laughs> so very excited. Her name is Andrea Mendoza. Uh, we were also teasing about the name and pronunciation. Uh, she's got Mendoza at the end. So like my Latina and me was like, OK, here we go. Here we go. Uh, but it is Andrea Mendoza. And this woman is a boss. She is a boss. I took her class and I, I honestly can't remember if it was at PPA or WPPI. Uh, but she was teaching on content planning and awareness and just life in general, how you plan and commit to these big extravagant events and the smaller ones that you actually want to, to do. And I took everything she said, her gracious heart. She spilled her beans about everything she does in her business. I took it. I started to implement it. I tried to implement it as best I can. It didn't go as smoothly as possible, but hey, that was our first try. So with no further ado, I would like to bring this business coach, mentor, educator, teacher, a photographer, just all of, and, and, and at the end of the day, a human being with a gracious and abundant heart, Andrea Mendoza. Hi, Andrea. Hi. Hi, guys. So glad to be here. My goodness. I'm thrilled. I'm so stoked to have you, and I'm honored that um, you gave me the platform to be able to just kind of, uh, you know, chat with you for a bit and just kind of get really intimate. Um, there's a lot going on right now. There's a lot in the industry going on. Um, I had, you know, completely no clue. Uh, I was very unaware. Uh, you know, I do try to stay off social media unless I'm posting about my business or I, I, it's just, it's, it can be very tiresome. I'm sure you know that. Um, and so I wasn't on and then I, you know, kind of got on and started seeing some things and I'm like, what in the hell has happened in this world of our boudoir industry? And, you know, um, started to reading comments and things like that. And so, at the end of the day, there's some shit that went down. Okay. We're, we're not going to spend our time. Um, we're not going to spend our energy on that. I, I heard, you know, both, both comments, I heard both things. And, um, I think what really struck me at the end of the day was that the people, um, on both sides were really taking accountability and saying, Hey, you know, we can do better. We can do more. Um, they were, their, their feelings were taken into consideration and, uh, God, I just thought, you know, it's important to, 
understand that we are all human beings at the end of the day and we are all doing the very, very best that we can. And we have, everybody has a lot of shit going on. And, uh, sometimes we don't always showcase that. And you had went up on the group and you did a live and you, um, really, you really just kind of let your heart out from what I can see and what I could feel. And some of the comments that you said in there touched me in a way that, you know, again, just remembering that we're human beings and that we have no idea, you know, above and beyond this, 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 whether it's a filter, whether it's a mask, I think you called it, uh, that there's shit on the inside that's going on sometimes. And, and we have the choice whether or not, you know, we want to allow that out. And so that's really what intrigued me. Number one about you is that you talked about trauma in your life and you talked about a lot of things that you have been through. And I thought it was really important to hear your voice and hear your story because you are out there doing your thing, girlfriend. And, um, you are, doing this out of the kindness of the industry. I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, so that other people can learn and grow and we can elevate our industry as much as possible. And I think that that's just badass. Um, and with that being said, personal life still happens. Things still happen. Yeah. Um, personal life is such a massive part of how we choose to show up in the world, right? Like there's so much that has gone on in each of our lives that really um, curates the dynamic and how we engage with the world. And um, my life story is uh, involved, <laughs> we'll, we'll call it that. Uh, and it did, it, it really does impact and have a massive kind of um, effect on how I show up in the world because there's a lot of things that I went through and a huge part of um, just my life story that has curated my personality and my sense of self and the things that I prioritize uh, in why I show up in the world the way that I do. And the, honestly, the way the, the reasons why I'm even in the boudoir industry mm. in um, you just, you just said a lot right there. I, and, and I want to start, like, I, I want to go back. So I, we're going to, I'm going to ask you a lot of pointed questions about your life and kind of where you, because at the end of the day, I think what we see, right. As, as, as uh, learning photographers or mentees or, or whatever, is that we see this, you know, strong, successful woman doing her thing, you know, being an educator and, um, teaching and doing and out there and, what we may fail to see are those things that made us who we are and why we move the way that we do. And those are all such key important things. I mean, there's, there's trauma that happens in people's life that, you know, it, I always call them bruises. What I say is that we all have bruises in our life that other people can't see, but when somebody touches it, if somebody touches that bruise, holy shit, like, you know, you may, you'd be like, what the hell happened here? You know, it, and it's because you touched my bruise that was unseen, but we have trauma and we have things that we dealt with, but it's also those very things that, gosh, made you who you are today, which in my eyes is a brilliant, I mean, I heard you talk about software and things like that. We're going to talk about that too, but, um, it makes you a brilliant, brilliant woman. So tell me, kind of start at the beginning, like, you know, who you are, where you came from and, and where maybe some of your trauma started for you. Yeah. Um, I would love to do that. So buckle up. <laughs> it is, it's a bit of a story. Anyone who gets the opportunity to kind of hear uh, me de delineate just 
the surroundings of kind of my life and where um, I've been and what has landed me into kind of the person that I have been today is they look at me and they're like, wow, you need to write a book. And I'm Mm. like, that's a a long book. But I love the opportunity to kind of um, dive into this with you guys. So my story um, really begins with and starts with the fact that I grew up in a very, very kind of difficult family, um, and uh, I am also neurodivergent. And can you I, can you pause really quick right there and tell me what the hell the word I heard that word being thrown around so many times, and I'm like, am I a neurodivergent? <laughs> tell me what it means. Potentially, I found that like a huge majority of the creative industry that we're in are neurodivergent. So uh, basically what you're talking about is you're talking about autism and you're talking about ADHD. So it's basically a different brain setup than holistic people who are people who don't have autism and don't have um, potential ADHD. I have both. So I am considered... um, So ADHD and autism. Wow. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yep. I have both ADHD and autism. And um, I, I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was a teen, when I was like a preteen, but um, that was in the nineties. And in the nineties, when you were diagnosed with ADHD, you were, it it, it just, it wasn't the same. They thought that you were going to grow out of it, Mm -hmm. that you are just basically in this space where uh, you have attention deficit issues, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so it was treated kind of callously. Um, when I was younger and like, it wasn't a big deal. Like I was just supposed to take medication when I was trying to study and all of these different types of things. Uh, but I wasn't, I didn't know that I had autism until much later on in life. Um, and it was really just like a number of different factors that kind of made me start looking at my history and my life and going, Oh man, there were like so many, like, there were so many factors that uh, could have been seen when I was younger to be able to provide me accessibility to tools and all of that good stuff, but nobody knew, right? Then mm-hmm. um, that that flew under the radar for me is that my family unit um, is tricky because I am the youngest of four. I have two older brothers and then I had an older sister as well that we're going to go into. Uh, and my older sister had down syndrome Mm -hmm. and, um, how much older was she than you? She was three years older than me, a little, Mm -hmm. a little, uh, under three years older. Biological parents as well. Yes. Biological parents as well. Um, and I call her, I called her my big little sister because she was my big sister, but, Mentally, she was almost always younger than me mm-hmm. and was by default kind of my tag along because we were the only girls. So she would um, spend time with me and my friends tagging along pretty much the entire time that I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's there's a term that is used um, that describes children of um, younger siblings, basically of children with disability and they call them, um, glass children because they're seen through. Mm. And I think that, um, part of the reason why my neurodivergence, my, you know, the, the different differentiation and kind of the way that my brain is set up, it wasn't recognized in my younger years is because my 
parents were so focused on the medical necessities of my older sister. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I went my entire adolescence really just not acknowledging these major, major differences in the way that my brain works. Um, And that caused a host of issues. So um, my my whole family is uh, actually Mormon. So mm. and like we're talking generations upon generations upon generations. And that like- that is a story upon itself, right? I mean, because I have a girlfriend, I have a very, very, very close knit girlfriend um, who grew up in the Mormon community. And you know, I'm not going to say anything negative or anything like that. But I, the rules, the regulations and um, being either chastised or just kind of kicked out for certain reasons is really traumatizing in itself. It is. And it is, it's a tricky dynamic because much like uh, many other different types of religion, there is doctrine that is accessible to children that is much more simplistic. And that's true in the Mormon church as well, right? Like when you're a child in the Mormon church, you're really just taught that like God loves you. You need to love your neighbor. Um, The family unit is like the most important thing that you can have any number of different things with respect to just positive positivity, light, all of that good stuff. And then the doctrine really changes as you get Mm. older and you're taught to do things um, like judge righteously, right? That's what they call it. Righteous judgment in the sense that you, and this is a a normal thing in, in everyday life where you are making decisions on whether or not someone, um, is engaging with you in a way in life that upholds your value system. Mm -hmm. And Mormon church, um, that happens around 11 ish years old. And, um, so the doctrine changes away from kind of just like you are everyone's God's ch- uh, children, like love your neighbor, like you need to just be kind and good to all of the different people. And it shifts over into this righteous judgment, but it also shifts very, very heavily into kind of patriarchal ideas mm-hmm. and general structural organization of the church, which is that the men are kind of the power holders, right? Hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's this thing called the priesthood, which is essentially like a blessing of enlightenment, so to speak, that they become the leaders of the family and the people who receive Mm -hmm. insight from God Mm -hmm. on how things should engage and act, uh, be acted upon within the family unit. And then women are kind of taught to move into this role where they are like this almost they're put on this pedestal in terms of their importance within the family unit as baby makers. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, yeah, like I could see I could see your brain and I'm just like, you know, that's at least what I've heard. I, I don't know. That's what I've heard. <laughs> yes. How do I say this? Yes, where you are, you are baby makers, you are in charge of kind of like creating the glue for the family unit, but your overall role inside of it is to um, maintain your personal chastity mm-hmm. because of the importance of purity within this 
just general dynamics. So before, before you go on, let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. When in your life did this stop like connecting with you? When, I mean, was it? When I was 11 years old. Mm. When Mm. that doctor did. And I will explain to you why. So there's a couple different reasons why I feel like I had a really, really difficult time connecting with the doctrine. Um, One of them has to do with the fact that I've, I've been autistic my entire life. What that means for me is I'm extremely logic based. Mm -hmm. So I cannot connect dots in a situation and make sense of like what someone is teaching me. I'm extremely skeptical Mm. in this situation because I spent the entirety of my childhood being molested by other kids. I grew up in a neighborhood where um, that was predominantly Mormon. We lived in Utah until I was six years old. And the entire time that I was living in that neighborhood, there was sexual abuse that that was running rampant amongst the kids. Mm. And it wasn't ever discussed. We didn't talk about sex. We didn't talk about, there was like an overall umbrella kind of like sheltering Mm -hmm. that took place. But this epidemic of sexual like exploitation was taking place amongst all of the kids. And nobody ever spoke up or they used, or people spoke up and it was just. I I don't know that anyone ever spoke up. There was so much shame tied Mm. to sex. Like I remember um, there's not a whole lot about my young childhood that I remember yeah. other than the trauma that I withstood from other kids. I can literally remember almost every instance where a child my age or a child a little bit older than me or a babysitter or something like that engaged in sexual behavior with me. Oh. And I remember things like um, accidentally finding like a violent um, porn video in my like in my, my dad's like VCR type of thing. And I remember, um, circumstances of just being exposed to sex, but I also remember circumstances where, um, I was engaging in self-pleasure at a very young age, because again, I had been sexualized at that point and had access to and understood kind of like the good feelings that were associated, like the good physical feelings that were associated with all of that stuff. And I remember getting caught by my dad and being so heavily shamed for it that it was just like, oh my God, I can never talk about like all of this other stuff. This is bad. This is wrong. This is nothing that I should be doing, et cetera, et cetera. So, and yet some of the places that you saw some of this stuff was in your own home. Correct. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Um, and so it it was just, it was a very, very confusing period of time for me because when you are 11 years old and the doctrine shifts because you move away from like Sunday school, primary, um, like just children's doctrine type of stuff and mm. you move into adolescence, um, adolescent group, they start talking about chastity in unequivocal levels, like in ways that I cannot explain to you. So I, from the time that I was 11 years old, 
started this relationship with myself seated on deep, deep shame. Mm. I had already been broken. There was an analogy that is commonly referred to in the Mormon church. I don't know that they use it anymore, but it was definitely a popular analogy that was used when I was growing up. And it was essentially the idea that your chastity is like a piece of gum. And once you chew it, you cannot get it back. Mm. And I was chewed gum. Wow. By the, by the time that I had, you know, shifted over into this um, adolescent education Does, kind of, uh, go ahead. Does that make you, so when you say that, when, you know, in that particular um, community, does that make you then like you're, you get shunned? Do you like, or is there a way to redeem yourself or is there, what, what happens? Yeah. So I uh, absolutely made it a point to like tell nobody anything, mm. right? Like I wasn't talking about my abuse at that in, at that particular moment in time because I didn't know it was abuse. Mm -hmm. To me, it looked like I had let kids do things to me that I shouldn't have or I had engaged in behaviors that I shouldn't have and I needed to feel shame and guilt mm. for engaging in those things right so that really created kind of like a rift for me with respect to the way that I engaged with the religion and started this whole process where um I started questioning all of the things mm -hmm. in the church all mm -hmm. of the, the teachings to the point that like I remember circumstances where my parents would tell me things like, you need to have childlike faith. And I'm sitting here going, I am a child. And I don't have faith in this, right? Like, I don't have the ability to just look at this and say, I believe without consequences, mm. right? Um, I remember circumstances where my parents would bring missionaries into our house to have me go through. Um, it's when when missionaries are teaching um, the go the gospel mm -hmm. to uh, potential members. They call them discussions, right? They have a various like series of discussions that they typically go through with every person. And I remember that my parents would have the missionaries come in to give me the discussions because they thought that like, I just didn't understand. And the reality of the situation was I could not connect the dots between the God that they taught me about when I was a child mm. and the God they were teaching me about is in like, as a teenager right. to the point that I was hospitalized in an inpatient unit for suicide attempts at 11 years old. Um, and I spent, uh, about a week, um, in inpatient hospitalization and walked on the other side of it. And I will say it was a blessing because when you're in a circumstance and a situation where you're surrounded by other kids who are suicidal, mm -hmm. it gives you a lot of perspective in your life. And, um, there were kids that I was, uh, in this inpatient unit with who were um, schizophrenic, who had like early onset schizophrenia and like the voices in their head were telling them to hurt people or hurt themselves. Wow. There was a four-year-old that I was um, in this inpatient unit with 
who had made multiple suicide attempts because everyone in his life had killed him, had killed themselves. And so I walked away from this inpatient stint with a tremendous amount of um, Mm self-reflection feeling. How old are you at this? Is this 11? Yeah, this is your 11. Yeah, I was 11 years old when when this was going on. So I walked out of this stint really feeling like my life is not so bad. I don't have justification for feeling the level of despair and self-hatred that I was feeling. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that that was the first time that I consciously um, gaslit myself (laughs) into believing that I hadn't gone through enough to justify the level of brokenness. Mm. Right. So, and that was, and that, that attitude was absolutely supported by my parents. Like I cannot explain to you the number of times over my entire lifespan where my parents have said things like, Your life is not so bad. Why are you like this? And um, it was extremely deeply, deeply damaging. And um, so, so difficult to kind of move about that space, having experienced so much of this trauma that I really didn't feel like I could talk about because sex wasn't discussed. Um, what was discussed was very shame based and I had already kind of entered in this space where I was way more sexualized, um, than other kids my age. And that created like a domino effect of just massive fucking issues in my Mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I did this inpatient stint when I was 11 years old and that kind of just started, this insane passion of self-hatred that led to other circumstances where I had victimized other children around that, uh, around that same period of time. I think I was 12 years old and, or I, I think I was 10 years old. And again, this is like the early nineties and I was a babysitter to these kids. Um, and not like, um, there wasn't like a molestation element on my end, but there was an education element on my end where I was educating kids that were five, six years younger Mm -hmm. than me on topics that I had no business talking to these kids about. And, um, like encouraging them to engage in behaviors that like children should not be engaging Mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. But it was so normalized for me that I didn't understand the depth of what I was doing in those circumstances and situations. So by the time I was rolling around at 11, 12 years old, and I'm starting to understand the impact of my behavior and the impact of like other children's behavior on me, I, um, God, I, I just, I fucking hated myself. Mm. I hated everything about myself. And I didn't grow up, the dynamic that I grew up in. Where's your sister at in all of this, like uh, during this time? And was she, do you know, was she ever molested? Yes. So um, I'm pretty sure that she dealt with that in in childhood as well. Mm -hmm. Um, My sister was raped 
when she was 15 years old. Um, and so similar, you, if you can do the math, I was 12, 12 and a half, 13 years old when, um, when Jenny was raped. And so there were just so many of these different elements, right? And Jenny is incredibly special to me because as my big little sister and growing up in the 80s and 90s, I had to be deeply protective of her mm -hmm. because kids were not kind to kids. With Shit, they're not kind still, but I get it. it I, I'm, I'm yeah. an 80s baby, so I got gotcha. you. Yeah, yes. Like it just, we had a different, different understanding of people with disabilities at that time. Like mm -hmm. I literally remember uh, my sister was um, brought into um, <clears throat> school for like my mom changed the education system in Utah to actually create special ed in our public school systems wow. because my sister was so influenced by other children's behavior and the way that like they acted around her and her mirroring mm. um, those behaviors that my mom was concerned that the that her having Down syndrome and putting her in a school with other kids with disabilities that um, children who were struggling with physical disabilities, um, mental disabilities that were more intense than her, that she was going to start emulating their behaviors. Mm -hmm. And what my mom wanted was for her to have the opportunity to emulate um, people's behaviors that were without disability. And so um, we, I spent a tremendous t amount of time in like my younger years defending her. Like I remember pushing kids into the deep end that were making fun of her, like at the public swimming pool. Good for yeah. you though. I'm sorry, but I, you know, sometimes kids just need to get their ass whooped. <laughs> and, and this is like that, that, you know, happened throughout many like areas of my life where I just felt like I had to stick up for defend Jenny because people were just being cruel to her. And so not only are you dealing with your own personal inner turmoil of the shit that you've gone through, but now you've also become a caretaker, almost a parent, because they were so concerned with the medical portion of what was going on with her. But you're concerned with the emotional as well. Like, you know, hey, don't pick on my sister. The, the kids were mean. So you're dealing with both of these aspects all while you're still a child yourself. And I, in a lot of ways, acted as her translator as well because she didn't speak well and I could understand her in ways that other people couldn't. And so um, I have always kind of been in this space where I was taking care of Jen. And um, so there were a lot of like deep-rooted um, attributes that she helped curate inside of me that I didn't understand until I was much older because I was so bogged down with all of the other noise. Now you you had mentioned that you didn't you don't speak with your parents any longer. When did when did that happen? Um the finalization of that happened just in the last month or so. Oh shit. Mm hmm. But I have not um, I have not had a relationship 
that was anything more than very surface level small talk with my parents for almost 15 years now. And that's just because the difference of beliefs and everything you've probably gone through. I mean, it's it's got to be, obviously, it's way more deeper, but I mean. It is. Yeah, it's, um, and, and we can kind of get into that as we move further down the line, but um, yeah, uh, generally speaking, my, what ended up happening was um, I started kind of getting therapy for some of the issues that I was having. Mm-hmm. And my dad very casually one day at, I mean, like, it's just burned in my brain um, for the, probably for the rest of my life. But my dad very casually told me that he had met someone um, that had kind of, that he had talked to about my, a a diagnosis that I received. And again, we can kind of dive into that um, as we move further along in this story. And I remember my dad telling me that he had told this man that he had already given up on having any kind of meaningful relationship with me. And that was news to me right? at that point. Cause I was like probably 25, 26 years old. And he just so, so casually said, like, I already let him know, like I've given up on the possibility of having, having a meaningful relationship with you. And it just, it was so heartbreaking for right. me at that point time that I was like, I need to, I need to let go of this relationship. Mm -hmm. I need to let go of the possibility of believing that I could have a relationship with my parents that I desperately wanted. And how hard was that for you? Oh, it was, it like, it broke my heart. It still to this day, absolutely breaks my heart. Um, the, the last month the the last incident that kind of occurred, that was the straw that broke the camel's back with my parents, um, it still slams into me. Right. And I'm like, I'm like 15 years into accepting that my parents cannot see me as the person that I am and And accept you accepting the fact that I cannot have the familial relationship that I want to have with them. Um, and it still slams into me. Like that is the thing. I don't know that I will ever fully get over is wanting my parents love and approval. Well, that that's a huge piece in the little girl that you are because that little girl is still very alive and present in your life. We all have them. And it's one thing that I speak about often, often, often to whether it's women come and see me in the boudoir suite or, or whether it's, you know, on a speech that I'm, what I'm talking about is that I have had to fight for years. Well, up until recently, what I call my little girl, and I named her Lulu because it was just easier for me to identify Lulu as like, she's the badass little girl that's going to like take her ball back and not want to play with you anymore. If you, you know, push too hard or if things don't go her way, she was the resentful girl. She was the jealous girl. She was the mean girl. Um, and as the woman that I am today, instead of shunning her and pretending that she didn't exist, I had to start figuring out how do I love Lulu? Because when people didn't show up and love me, you know, when, when, and, and, and I did come from a really good home, but my, 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 my mom specifically was not emotionally available for me. Um, you know, she was a workaholic and many of the attributes that I take to who I am now was because of that. Um, I would say that I, I'm always now trying to love on that little girl. And, and I know that I have the power within me at any point to go back and, and hug on her and tell her it's going to be okay. And you still, no matter how much fucking healing we do, we still have that little girl inside of us. We do. And it was, um, 
what ended up happening after that hospital stint, I remember my parents gave me a journal to use um, while I was inpatient. And I remember walking out of or leaving the hospital and letting my parents know that I had a connection with higher power because of like journaling, like, like I know God, like God loves me, like all of these different things. Mm -hmm. And that began this incredibly toxic relationship with my parents where I received love, adoration, care, acceptance, kindness from them only when I believed in the church. Mm. So I went through this very chaotic struggle where I was really, really like deeply struggling with connecting the dots in the church with making sense of the fact that they tell me like, God loves all of his children. He knows you, but he doesn't love you. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But, but if you, if you do not acknowledge the church, if you shun the church, you will never have access to God in the afterlife. And that's what Mormons believe. Mm. They believe that you have to meet a certain number of metrics in order to actually access God. Mm-hmm. You know what, right. you know what, what I say to that, and this is going to sound really shallow and whatnot, but you know, it was, it was Henry Ford that said, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. And in their mind, they may be right for them. And when they go off and they, then may, maybe they won't, you know what I mean? But that doesn't make it true for you. It does not make it true for anybody. Right. And the, the thing that I really struggled with in that in that concept and that idea is I'm, I'm sitting here going, how can you tell me that God knows me, that God loves me and sees all of my struggles, but doesn't recognize that I'm a skeptical motherfucker yeah. and I need more information than your average, you know, than your average bear, so to yep. speak. Um, and so I really struggled with that, right? Where I would go up and down uh, in this belief system where I'm like, okay, I can believe in the church. And then, shit, this doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. Or like, I can't conceptualize like how this is the truth. Um, and now obviously I'm in a space where uh, I just, I don't agree with any of the church's teachings. I believe that it is, um, it's gotten to, it's, 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 it's unhealthy doctrine. I believe it is a very controlling doctrine, um, and, uh, and is very, very damaging to a lot of people's, um, psyches mm-hmm. and self-worth. And, um, I was actually just talking with a friend that I grew up with in childhood and she's talking to me about how she is now traversing this self-esteem path right now and we're we're in our um, mid to late 30s both of us um traversing this like self-esteem path where she is trying to heal from the damage that the church did Mm -hmm. pertaining to like her self-value and her self-work and i was just commending her for her bravery and pushing Mm -hmm. into that because that's something that i had to do well, there's yeah. guilt. I, don't, I mean, would you agree that there's also because, uh, you know, I grew up in the Catholic Church and I, I really never could understand it. I couldn't I couldn't understand why we had to talk to a priest and why we couldn't just go talk to God ourselves. And 
yeah. the, the the very rigid teachings and this is how you have to do it and 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 then just you know I, I just I didn't get it and when I left the church and and I found Christianity for me um, and even then like there's a lot of things that I that I struggle with and and why I say that is because uh, I had a I had a straight up conversation with God. And it was right after a neck surgery that I had. And I don't tell very, very many people this because I'm afraid of judgment and I'm afraid of what they're going to say about the conversation that literally God and I had. But it was one of pure love and no judgment and that we are all on our journey. We're all on a journey to, you know, live the best life that we can and and to acknowledge one and yes, love one another at the end of the day, that love is the greatest tool that you can bring to anybody without all the rules and regulations and and that we people had it wrong like he basically told me you guys got it wrong like it's very very wrong so i have to tell you that one of um so moving throughout this period and and there's like a lot more to get into in the timeline and and all of that good stuff but um when i got to a place of self-healing i also got to a place of um, living in kind of like an agnostic, like mm-hmm. atheist state, mm-hmm. right? Because I felt like religion had um, hurt me so deeply that I just could not connect with religion. I could not collect, connect religion with peace. Mm-hmm. And I read the most amazing book um, on Christianity that connected so many dots for me. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, because it was so profoundly brilliant. It's called Mary Magdalene Revealed. Mm. And it is essentially a novel from a Christian author who got so frustrated with modern day mainstream Christianity Mm -hmm. and the hate and bigotry that is oftentimes enwoven like in, you know, Christianity in general. And she's sitting going like, this isn't me. This isn't Christ. This doesn't sense to me. So she went on kind of like a research expedition, so to speak, to look for biblical texts, biblical time texts that were not included in the Bible, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. there were prophets and disciples and all of these different people who um, wrote down their experiences with their journey, their experience, their words. Same as all of the, you know, books in the Bible were, and they just weren't included because the Nicene Creed had determined that that book was not going to be included in the Bible. Mm. And the Nicene Creed did their best to destroy any additional documentation and texts, but they didn't destroy everything. And what this book really talks about is how mainstream Christianity has bastardized mm-hmm. uh, teachings and that specifically women were some of the most important disciples and prophets in Christ's church. And misogyny essentially led to a situation where they were excluded. Mm-hmm. from the importance of his teachings. Mm. And um, and it talks tremendously about the fact that Jesus was teaching about love, about love over everything. Yep. And the first component of love was love for self. Yep. 
And that is the place that I've really journeyed through in my spiritual journey. Um, when I got to a place of like tremendous amount of uh, deconstruction mm -hmm. and healing and engagement, um, I was just, I was led to understand the Christian mindset more because when I started to love myself, I felt a connection with higher power that I had never been able to access mm -hmm. previous to and alignment with what just, what age are you at this point I was 25 okay. at this point so basically uh just kind of like driving it back down into um the timeline previous to that my all of these different components that were playing an active role in like the way that I was growing up the other piece is that um, the church really gives so much power to men that it creates a power dynamic in um, the fam familiar relationships where control and abuse and like whether it's mental, emotional, etc. is extremely prominent. And my dad was very mentally and emotionally abusive to my mother. Um, and very emotionally and mentally abusive to me and was uh, very abusive to my brothers in all aspects. So they received physical components of mm -hmm. abuse from my dad. And so I had just like all of these different facets that kind of came together and curated a space where by the time I was in my late teens, um, I was in a space of rebellion and mm -hmm. I was a really good kid. Like I didn't, I didn't start drinking until the year, the summer between my like junior and senior year of mm -hmm. high school. I lost my virginity just like a couple months before my 18th birthday. So I was always a pretty freaking good kid, but my parents always treated me like I was this massive problem mm -hmm. that I had these massive issues. And I was rejected love and security from my parents every single time I moved from a space where I was not immersed in church in a way that they found acceptable. Mm -hmm. And um, it just, it led to circumstances where by the time I actually was having sex, I was using sex to hurt myself. Mm. I was using to punish myself and to justify all of the self-hatred that I had inside of me because it was the only way that I could make sense of like how fucking angry and just dark it was inside my being. Mm -hmm. And that led to a series of additional circumstances, right? Like I ended up getting pregnant with my oldest child when I was 19 years old. And it was, um, I got I got pregnant from a man that I had been dating like a relatively short period of time. Mm -hmm. And by the time that I realized I was pregnant, we had broken up and that's its own like, fucked up story because I was not an active participant in getting pregnant. A condom was removed while we were having sex and I was not privy wow. to that information. And so I ended up pregnant 
Um, I was living in Utah at the time. I was living with my my brother and his wife. And is your um, was your brother? Did he stay in the the Mormon? Yeah. Okay. Both of my both of my brothers are still active in the church. I am the only one that has been the little black sheep that has moved away from the doctrine um, okay. that the church teaches. So they're both. My whole family is still active. All like the majority of my cousins, my you know, grandparents were active until the, the day that uh, they died. Like my ancestors literally traveled from Europe to the Americas for Mormonism. Wow. So when I tell like I am generations deep in this thing and that this played just a huge part of the like construct of how of what made me, mm-hmm. that's why. Right. When I started struggling uh, with the church, my grandma stopped allowing me to be her favorite. Um, I always used to say that she would have a twinkle in her eye when she saw me. And moving into my teen years, my grandma's attitude toward me, like, about faced, just a total 180. And I was ostracized. So I was just going to say that, like I, you used a different word, but you know, I, I'm thinking about everything that you're saying. And although everybody was present in your life, you still were abandoned by the very people that are supposed to love you, take care of you, be there, keep you safe. You were basically abandoned. Yep. I sure was. And I spent almost every night. Um, so when I got pregnant, I was living in Utah. Mm -hmm. Planned parenthood was not a thing in Utah, like didn't exist. And it was still a relatively small thing everywhere else in the country as well, because, uh, we were just at, this was like 2003, 2004. So we were just at this precipice where our country as a whole were having conversations about sex positivity and about sexual education Mm -hmm. and about all of these different things that just hadn't been present um, in the current time. And so I, uh, I ended up pregnant and the, the man who got me pregnant, his attitude toward the enti- entire thing was, let me know how much money you need for the abortion. Wow. And Although uh, he I, was the one that <laughs> took off the condom. <laughs> God. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and he was nine years my senior. He was finishing up a uh, doctorate program and I was a baby. So he was, uh, he was 28 years old when I was 19 and um, it just, yeah, it was, it was a gross abuse of power. Um, And he really liked me. Like that is one thing that I, that I remember during that time. Um, And so when I ended up pregnant and, uh, basically told him what ended up happening was, um, my second cousin was with me when I found out that I was pregnant and, uh, my parents ended up finding out and they basically told me that I am going to have this baby or I am no longer going to have a family. Mm. And so they asked me to move home and I moved home and I spent almost every night of my pregnancy being sat down by my father who was telling me that I needed to give my baby up for adoption because I had ruined my life. No man would ever want me. 
I've ruined my opportunities to have a, um, like a good Mormon partner. Um, and like, how could I do this to myself essentially? Mm -hmm. So almost every night of my pregnancy, I was belittled and made to feel like I was just this worthless human being. And the only opportunity that I had for redemption was to give my cousin who was struggling with infertility issues, my baby. Wow. By the time that I got to that place, I had vehemently decided that I was keeping this baby. If this was happening, like I was going to be a mom. Mm -hmm. And it's important to note that I had spent my entire life being told that my worth was attributed to motherhood. And so I, even though this was happening in a way that like I hadn't planned and I hadn't expected, I was following the course that I was supposed to take. Right. And I was going to say in, in that, did you ever feel a sense of, okay, now I'm going to be worthy like if for yourself or even for them, I guess. Mm -mm. Nope. The only time that I, I, I think that, um, that's the point that I started settling into the idea that I was never going to be worthy. Um, and I ended up having my baby and I, um, met my ex-husband when my oldest was three months old Mm -hmm. and I touched on to the very first man who seemed to accept the fact that I had a child and that was a deeply toxic relationship right from the get-go but I was so desperate for love and love me Mm -hmm. and accept the fact that I had um, created this tiny little human being that filled my heart with wonder and awe that I was just like, okay, this is, this is where we're at with this. And that started a situation where I was emotionally, mentally, and eventually physically abused through the totality of that marriage. Wow. To to the point that, um, I ended up having an, I had my second child in that marriage And uh, we tried literally one time, decided it was a bad idea for us to try and have a baby. And then I found out I was pregnant. And uh, we moved, um, we moved to do like door to door sales. You were uh, still in Utah at this time? No. Okay. So here's the, here's where, here's the timeline of events in terms of like where I moved. So we lived in Utah until I was six years old. And then my dad's job moved us around from Ohio for three years to Missouri for another two years, and then eventually to Oregon. From in Oregon, we we moved there when I was eleven, so that's where like all of the um, all of the drama took place. I was seeing therapists at that time for separation anxiety. I was being tested for ADHD. I had my IQ tested. Um, during that whole process, like there was just a lot that my parents were trying to do for me because they noticed that I had gotten into this space where I was really messed up, mm-hmm. but there was zero accountability from them that they would have played a role mm. in 
what I had become. So we spent six years uh, just outside of Portland, Oregon, and that's what I consider home is Portland. And then um, at the end of my junior year of high school, we moved down to Sacramento, California, which is where I've lived since then. Okay. So, or rather, I live. I, that's where I lived, and then I jumped back down to Utah after high school and lived there for maybe like three or four months mm-hmm. before ended up pregnant and moved back with my parents to Sacramento. So um, at that point in time, um, I was living in Sacramento with my with my ex-husband. We moved back up to Portland for a summer in 2008. I was very, very pregnant. And my husband at the time was doing door-to-door sales, which is kind of a normal thing for Mormon men. Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of Utah that have kind of. And he uh, was a Mormon man. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm. My, my husband grew up Mormon as well, um, but is not straight. And because of that grew up with just a tremendous amount of self-loathing him, himself. And I have to say as deeply abusive as our relationship was, um, I have compassion for him at this point in my life. He's gone through a lot of a massive healing journey himself, but he was struggling with his own just deep, deep, profound self-hatred because of his sexuality. And the church does not, is not okay with anything other than being straight in the church. And up until probably 2010 or so, they didn't, they believed that sexuality was a choice. They didn't even believe that it was something that you were born with. Right. And it went through like a, a major, there was a like born this way kind of major campaign that took place within the Mormon church, um, kind of surrounding the time where same sex, uh, same sex marriage legalization was taking place in California, mm-hmm. which the church took a massive stance against and put so much money toward um, the trying to pass like or trying to ensure that like gay marriage was not legalized in California. Um, And that was all happening kind of at the same time as we were living in Oregon. Mm -hmm. So what actually happened during that period of time is my husband was supposed to be doing door to door sales. And I found out later on he was going to a bar all day and just fucking around and uh, sleeping with other people and um, doing drugs. And I was maintaining the office management for that, um, like the, for those field operations, I was their field manager. Um, And so my salary was supporting our entire life because he was making no commissions because he was working. Right. so he was just on his own thing, doing his own thing, um, and just deeply, deeply emotionally, verbally abusive toward me during the totality of that pregnancy. And when my daughter was born, uh, we moved back down to Sacramento literally, I think, like seven to ten days before I gave birth to our daughter. And my ex-husband left me when she was two weeks old. And so I went through now two children, like raising basically a newborn by myself. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I was living with my parents at the time. My parents have always provided me um, housing and mm-hmm. uh, monetary support um, when I needed it in those different kind of structures. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful to them for that because I would have been in a really, really difficult place. But um, there, there was just, there was so much. And I get very, very bad uh, postpartum depression with every single one of my babies. How many, my how many kiddos do you have? On, on I your... have three. Okay. I have three. And all three of my kids have different fathers. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of get an idea of like the chaos that, um, that was surrounded parenting in general for mm-hmm. me. And trying to figure out your own way to parent these kids with all the turmoil and the shit that you, I mean, because that's what I always tell my kids is that we as parents, we always want to do better than what was, you know, done for us. And so sometimes we even go a little excessive on trying to do better that then we can mess up our kids as well because they become spoiled little shit sometimes or whatever, but. And that is absolutely the case. But in, in this situation, like Caden, my oldest was he was around all of the abuse, mm-hmm. right? It's not that he, that these situations would happen directly in front of him, but we would get into these situations where my husband, my ex-husband would drink and gamble and come home just toasted and throw me against walls or threaten to wake Caden up or just enter into these scenarios where he's getting physically abusive with me or yelling in the house or and would use Caden against me Mm -hmm. because I wouldn't want you know these things to affect him and it did like it caused massive issues issues that I'm now seeing in my 17 year old child Mm. um where he has really really deep abandonment issues because at two and three years old he was learning that it didn't matter what his feelings were if he was scared Mm. or um, in this place where he didn't know what was happening, he had to sort through those emotions on his own. Mm -hmm. And I think caused, you know, major psychological issues for him that I'm now witnessing as a healed human being Mm -hmm. in latter years. And it it breaks my heart because nothing I can do about it now I can only wait for him to be ready to engage with healing practices yeah. that will help him kind of unwind that damage. The only thing that I can do for him now is show up and make sure that he understand understands the importance of like my love yeah. being additional mm-hmm. and giving him space to become ready on his own to go through this healing journey, but it's a waiting game for me right. at this point because right. no amount of therapy that we did when he was younger had the ability to touch on these massive discrepancies that he created um, when he was three years old, two mm-hmm. and a half years old, um, where his brain's building blocks are basically putting together these ideas of what is safe and what is not. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's been it's been so hard um, as a healed human to go and to look at 
um, the way that these things have impacted my children, like the, the damage in my life has impacted my children that they, I know that they are going to have to work through Mm -hmm. in adulthood in order to access the space that I've been able to reach through my own healing journey. Um, and so I was in this, you know, deeply abusive relationship with my ex-husband where he is dealing with a tremendous amount of addiction on his end, Mm -hmm. a tremendous amount of self-loathing on his end that just created abysmal circumstances for me and my children. And we actually left that marriage seven times before it stuck. We separated and got back together over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a statistic mm-hmm. um, that most women are incapable of actually leaving abuse until the seventh time. And uh, for me, what prompted that was Jenny dying. Mm-hmm. And um, this is where I'm going to get emotional because I can't talk about Jenny without crying. So. This was in 2010, and um, I had my my daughter was born in 2008, mm-hmm. uh, in August 2008, and I believe that my ex husband and I got back together for the last time in October of 2009. Mm-hmm. We went a little over a year um, because I needed to feel that I was, um, that he had made progress in the issues that he had, uh, before I went back into that relationship. And so he was telling me that he was getting therapy. Mm -hmm. What I ended up finding out after the fact is that he would disappear for an hour at a time to go sit under a tree and think about what he'd done, (laughs) not actually getting real help. And so what happened was we had gotten back together. We actually bought a house together. Um, and, uh, that was like his, you know, we weren't going to have another baby, but let's buy a house to try and fix the marriage Mm -hmm. type of situation. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we had bought a house together and the period of time when we were living in the house was the greatest abuse that I ever withstood from him. And it didn't look like regular abuse because I wasn't walking out of the house with like black eyes and all of that kind of stuff. He was intentional about hitting me in my head, in my hairline. Uh, And so I would get knocked around and nobody would be able to see the bruises. Nobody was able to understand the abuse that I was withstanding at that point. And, um, there had been a number of different incidents where I just got to a place where I was broken in that house and I subjected myself to the abuse and felt like I had just gotten to a place where I was fucked up and I needed, and the sooner that I could accept the fact that I am just a fucked up human being and accepting that that is who I am that I could get to a place of greater peace, Mm -hmm. right? But I had also determined that I had made my bed and I needed to lay in it Mm. because my ex-husband had convinced me that I had two kids by two different dads, that I was trashy, 
that nobody was going to want me if I walked away from that relationship. And at 23, 24 years old, that's a really hard thing to subject yourself to. Mm -hmm. Like the idea of like, yeah, I might have to be alone for the rest of my life with Mm -hmm. and be a single mom with these kids. Um, And these were just the stories that were presented to me and told to me. Mm -hmm. And um, Jenny had struggled with health issues her entire life. She actually uh, wasn't supposed to live past two years old. Mm. Um, She had heart defects, uh, which is a common thing in kids with Down syndrome Mm -hmm. to have to have different heart surgeries and all of that kind of stuff. So Jenny was born with a hole in her heart. Um, She had an operation when she was eight years old to kind of um, umbrella that hole and, um, and for whatever reason, when she was a baby and she wasn't supposed to live past two, the issues that were kind of prominent in uh, preventing her from being able to live a long, happy life just disappeared. Mm. They couldn't explain it. It, They considered it a a medical miracle. They didn't know why it was going on. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, she just wasn't dealing with these issues in the same way. And they were able to kind of like mitigate the ongoing issues via a surgery when she was eight years old again. And um, otherwise we just dealt with like the norm of having a family member with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. What ended up happening, however, was the, between like probably 2008 and 2010 when my sister passed away we started noticing that Jenny was getting really tired when she was walking. Like she would do the stairs in the house from the first floor to the second floor. Mm -hmm. And she would have to stop at the top of the stairs and like sit down on the couch up there and catch her breath. Um, And so my mom recognized that there were health issues and she battled with insurance um, for just a long time to try and see if we could have something done, um, exploratory surgery done to figure out like what the heck is going on with Jenny. And so this was May of 2010. And I am in this marriage and in this relationship that is awful and terrible. And my mom is fighting with insurance. And finally, we get approval for Jenny to have this exploratory surgery where they basically send a scope up her um, her femoral artery and they go and take a look at like what's going on in her heart, what's going on in her lungs, et cetera. And what happened um, during that period of time is Jenny went in for exploratory surgery and they let us know that she was dealing with congestive heart failure and pulmonary hypertension because Her heart was failing because it could not get enough oxygen in it, into the blood, which was preventing appropriate blood blood flow from the heart, which was subsequently causing her lungs to not work properly so that it could oxygenate the blood. Mm -hmm. So the, the two organs were really fighting against each other and neither one was working for one another. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't like, that was treatable at Mm -hmm. that point, right? 
they're like, okay, she has pulmonary hypertension. She has congestive heart failure. This is what we're dealing with. We're going to put her on Cialis or Viagra or something like that, which is actually what those medications were intended for was to help curate additional blood flow in the body. They just found out that like a side effect was that it would give like dudes woodies. Right. Mm. Um, and so that was the expectation after the surgery is that Jenny would go on to um, like a medication like this and she would have to be on a medication like this to help her blood flow and mm -hmm. her oxygen flow um, more. And um, the day after we got notification of her needing to be on this medication, they're like, "Ooh." This is, I think, worse than what we thought it was. We're going to put her on an intravenous medication where she wears a pump the rest of her life. And this medication is just pumped into her 24-7 because if for whatever reason the drip stopped, um, she would have about an hour's time before her heart failed. Wow. And that was like a super intense um, piece of information for us to receive from the doctors because mm -hmm. we're like, holy shit, like this is bigger than we thought. This yeah. is more expansive than we thought. Like this is a big deal. And so, um, at that point we're like, okay, you know, Jen's on intravenous medication the rest of her life. We are dealing with pumps. We're dealing with, you know, incision sites, um, to make sure that like, all of these things uh, are going about and working through, et cetera. Jenny still hadn't really woken up from this original exploratory surgery at this point. And they're mm -hmm. telling us, nope, that's totally normal. Like this was a lot for her body to go through, especially because of the congestive heart failure, pulmonary hypertension, et cetera. We're just going to give her more opportunity to rest. Well, the day after we were told that she would be having um, constant intravenous medication, they told us that she would have constant intravenous medication, but we were probably lucky to get two years left from her. Mm -hmm. um, and that was like a Mack truck mm -hmm. slamming into us because Jenny was such an integral part of all of our lives. Like my mom had spent... I mean, our entire lifetime uh, at this point, Jenny is 27 years old mm -hmm. and has been living with my parents her entire life. She's written into the will in terms of like, which one of our, which one of the siblings would take her in the event that like, um, my parents, something happened to my parents and my sure. parents could no longer take care of her. Like we had worked through all, all of these scenarios where we were taking on sibling responsibility of caretaking her for the rest of her life. We never wanted her to be have to move into a home. We never wanted to have to create a situation where she was not being cared for by family. Um, and that is what we had all expected was one of us was going to take care of Jenny mm -hmm. after my parents had died. And so that's where we were all at in terms of like, the expectation of Jenny's lifespan. Mm -hmm. And so the day after we got news that she was going to have intravenous medication and we may only have two years for her, we were told that we were going to uh, probably have closer to six months with her. And that timeline shortened and shortened. And on the seventh day, 
that Jenny was in the hospital, um, we turned off the machines and unplugged her because the only thing that was sustaining her life was medication and ventilation. Mm. Um, and she woke up for maybe 48 hours during that period of time. And she was so scared. Mm. Um, mm. And so we were just really focused on loving her yeah. and trying to give her reassurance and understanding. And um, one of the last things that she told my mom was that um, grandma, who my, my grandparents had all passed away by that point, mm -hmm. grandma was with her. Wow. And why is grandma here? Mm. Wow. So that was kind of one of the last things that she had expressed to us. And then she went into a coma. And um, that was about, I think, at the three-day mark, maybe the fourth day. And so we spent another few days trying to determine whether or not we were going to be able to get her back. And just day by day, she wasn't recovering. She mm -hmm. wasn't getting better. The only thing that was keeping her alive at the end was the medication that they had her on and they didn't think that her lungs would be able to support themselves if they were to actually turn off the, the ventilation. Mm -hmm. And so we made a decision as a family on the seventh day to go ahead and let her go. And um, we were all there. And um, around mm -hmm. while she flatlined, uh, just kind of loving her and holding her through that space. And it had a deep impact on me because mm -hmm. I just had never, I had never imagined life without her, sure. right? Like I imagined life with her without my parents before I had ever gone to a place where I was thinking that I was going to have to live without Jenny. Right. And so it hit me deeply. And it, um, this was the end of May, uh, May 29th, 2010. And um, I got to a place after Jenny died where I looked around and I looked at the life that I was living um, with my ex-husband and the, the abuse that I was living in and believing that I had made my bed and I had to lay in it. And I looked around and I said, what the fuck am I doing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why have I chosen this? Life is too short to be so unhappy. And so uh, in October of that same year, I separated mm -hmm. from my ex-husband and um, it just created this vacuum for me to start getting really introspective on the way that my life had played out up mm -hmm. until this point. So Jenny saved you. Jenny saved me and I think it was her last gift to me. Mm. Jenny. Um, actually her second to last gift to me because I met my current husband in 
December mm-hmm. of 2010. And I was spiraling at that point, right? Like I was in like a full on hoe phase because <laughs> I had just spent the last four years being locked in a relationship that was not only deeply abusive to me, but that I was being, um, like my, my ex-husband uh, will admit to cheating on me with probably 15 different people during that four years that we're together, which means that it's probably double that, mm-hmm. that amount of people, right? And I knew a lot of what was going on because there were circumstances where he was cheating on me with uh, mutual friends of ours and I'm finding out about it. And he's cheating on me after he leaves me when Brooklyn's born, my, my second child, mm-hmm. um, and living with his buddy and, uh, who was single and just having like all of the fucking like girls mm-hmm. in and out of the guys' house and, um, like interacting and engaging, um, with all of them. And so I, uh, I was at this point where, uh, I had told Adam, my ex-husband that, um, I was in this space and in this stage where he had to pulverize my heart in order for me to stop loving him. And that was, that's the toxicity of a, of a, you know, of an abusive relationship is you love this person Mm -hmm. deeply the point where you are desperate for them to, to change themselves to become a healthier version for your relationship. And I realized at some point along the lines that that just wasn't going to happen. And one of the greatest lessons that I learned during that process, because I went and got myself in domestic violence therapy, Mm -hmm. um, in order to like leave all of this, we have, um, we had, uh, just a conversation or I, I had gone to a, an organization kind of similar to weave, um, for people, for women who are trying to leave abusive search situations, mm-hmm. um, because I had been pulled back into it so many times and I didn't want to do that this time. Like this time felt different for me. So mm-hmm. I ended up in therapy, DV therapy, where I was being asked a lot of questions about my childhood and my relationship with my father and why are you not emotional about this abuse that you're talking about and kind of getting into this place where I am, I learned and the greatest lesson that I learned from that 18 months of like domestic violence therapy that I attended initially out of this relationship was that um, I cannot change people. Mm-hmm. I have zero power Correct. over influencing someone else Correct. to show up in the relationship that I'm in with them. Yep. And the only thing that I had power over was how I reacted. Right. So um, I meet my current husband in December while I'm in this hoe phase and... <laughs> Uh, my husband and my husband, um, and I connected because his wife died two months before Jenny did. Wow. And we connected in grief and became unbelievable friends and an incredible support system for one another. Mm -hmm. 
but I had a whole fucking roster at this point, right? Like I had like four guys that everybody knew about everybody. And I was just of the attitude that like, you know where I'm at, you know what I'm doing. If you're not happy with it, you can like opt out at any point. Like Mm -hmm. this is where I am. And so I went on, you know, a, a couple initial dates with my husband and on our second date, we were, sorry about that. It's okay. I, I had a notification pop up. And on our second date, um, we were in the shower together after spending the night together. And he told me that he was falling in love with me. Mm. And I went, whoa. Buddy. <laughs> too fast, too fast. Too fast. Welcome to the friend zone. <laughs> I friend that motherfucker and basically said, okay, like, you obviously can't do casuals. I'm not going to do casual. Anymore, but like, I also really appreciate your friendship and mm-hmm. your love. So we will go ahead and, um, you know, just assume that we're going to move into this space where we are friendly with one another. Mm-hmm. And that's what ended up happening. So from December until March or so, um, we were just amazing support systems for one Mm -hmm. another talked constantly um and just helped each other work through a tremendous amount of grief Mm -hmm. while i'm simultaneously going through this therapeutic process you know dv therapy while i'm trying to get myself worked out etc right so in march of 2011 uh justin march is when his his wife passed away And so Justin decided that he, Justin's my husband, uh, Justin decided that he was going to take a, like a mission trip to Costa Rica over the anniversary of her passing. So he had planned to spend a month in Costa Rica. The first couple weeks he was going to go work at a local orphanage Mm -hmm. there, kind of just surround himself with kids and serve. And then the second half of the trip, he was going to go save the turtles. So he was going to basically help um, all of, like, the little baby turtles that are hatching Mm. on the earth make it to the ocean. I mean, how could you not fall in love with this guy? How could you not fall in love with a man like this? Like, you're going to go save the turtles? Right, right. Mm -hmm. So what ended up happening was it took me about a week after him leaving Um, and I will tell you that he had every single intention of never talking to me. Oh, wow. He went to Costa Rica with the intention of disconnecting from Mm. me, breaking his heart. Mm -hmm. He was firmly in love with me at that point in time, but he's still watching me date other people. And and you're still in this healing process, but you're still kind of destroying your life. I mean, hindsight yeah. 2020, when, when we're yeah. in relationships like that, we're still experiencing punishment to ourselves. And, and like, Correct. even though we think we're, you know, I'm going to fucking rebel and who cares? And, you know, I'm going to live my life and YOLO. We're really just hurting ourselves. And he's probably witnessing yeah. this. Yeah. And I'm sitting there spiraling, just circling the toilet at this mm-hmm. point. Um, and so it took me about a week for me to realize that I really did not like doing life without Justin in it. Mm. And I remember emailing him and just letting him know, like, I don't like this. Yeah. This comfortable to me. You are supposed to be in my life. And he actually ended up coming home 
uh, a week and a half early from that trip. And that was game, set, match for us. Like, we basically were inseparable. So you were that. his little turtle. Like, he, you were the actual <laughs> little turtle that he saved. Yes. <laughs> Maybe not all the baby turtles were saved, but, like, this baby turtle That's was right. Saved. That's right. And um, probably, I want to say... Gosh, maybe like nine or so months into dating, um, I was seeking additional therapeutic services, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like started moving towards topping out with this like therapist that I was seeing for domestic violence. And I was looking to get on medication because I was just, I was in a rough spot still. And so I went into a psychiatrist to get diagnosed with depression again, because I had been diagnosed with anxiety and depression basically mm-hmm. all my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I was sitting down with the psychiatrist and she started asking me pointed questions about the circumstances in my life. Like, do you feel like you have to leave people before they leave you? Mm. Do you feel like you have to strum up like drama in the Mm. event that things start getting too calm? Self-sabotage. Yeah. Yeah. And like, so she's talking to me about all of these different factors and every question that she's asking me, I feel like someone is finally seeing me, Mm -hmm. right? Like they're defined. She's literally putting words to the idea that I am like my concept that I was just fucked up, Mm -hmm. right? Like Mm -hmm. by definition, I am just a fucked up human being. And then she tells me that all of these characteristics are indicative of borderline personality disorder. Mm. And she does me with borderline personality disorder. And there is a specific therapy that is used to treat people with this specific type of personality disorder because personality disorders are not, um, they're not things like bipolar where mm-hmm. you have like full imbalance in your brain mm-hmm. or depression. your brain is like misfiring and you have like a lack of, you know, the, the hormones that you need in order to like be in this happy space, et cetera. Personality disorders are developed from trauma Mm -hmm. um, or from different circumstances that kind of just steep your brain in um, this ideology. Mm -hmm. And so I remember being diagnosed and just sobbing in her office because I asked her, can I fix this? Mm. And she said, well... I have to let you know that patients with BPD don't typically have the ability to correct these issues for themselves. In theory, it is possible. There is a specific type of therapy. It's called dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT for short, that has been designed for people with borderline personality disorder, but it is tremendously difficult to get to a place of recovery within your personality disorder because BPD is essentially an addiction to chaos. Mm, Wow. where, Where you do not 
allow yourself to enter into a peaceful place because you are so accustomed to feeling informal yeah. mm-hmm. that that's the comfortable spot for you. Wow. Is being in a place of complete and total turmoil. Mm. That just, you know, you saying that in itself just like brings to light for me so many, and I'm not trying to diagnose people in my, you know, but you start to understand like, wow, because there's just certain circumstances around people that it's like, I think you strive in this, like you just do really well in this and why? Because of so much trauma. Yes. Yep. But... She told me that while it's not common, mm-hmm. it's possible. Mm. And that's all I needed to know. Yep. Right? Because I did not want to be the person that I was for my children. Yeah. Because I already watched how impactful it was on my babies mm-hmm. to be in a place of chaos. Mm-hmm. So had this man that I was falling down deeply in love with or had fallen deeply in love with, I guess, at this point. And I was watching how my issues were affecting this relationship Mm. with, with this man. And so I decided like, I am not going to be the one Mm. that is capable of healing from this. Speak girl. Sign me up for everything Mm -hmm. that I could possibly sign up for. I am going to dive in and I'm going to do the hard work. You decide, you made a decision, you made a decision. And that that right there for me is just key. And anything that somebody's going through is that you made a decision that this is it. It stops with me. I'm going to do this and nobody can want it for you. You have to want it for yourself. He couldn't have wanted it for you. You saw, you saw what was happening with the relationships, but you needed to want it for yourself. Correct. And that is like literally the most important, uh, the, the, the most important factor from borderline personality disorder, because it is deeply uncomfortable to learn the tools that are required to move past impulsivity, to move past self-destruction, to move past this place where, you are deflecting responsibility for the pain that you're you are curating in other people's lives because simultaneously like healing does not happen on the same plane as plane of existence as hatred mm. Mm. say that again say that one more time healing does not happen on the same plane of existence of hatred <sighs> And so drop a motherfucking dime on that one. You are incapable of healing yourself while simultaneously hating yourself. Wow. And wow. It's cyclical, right? When you're moving in patterns of self-hatred, you're consistently keeping yourself submerged in the toxicity that is curating those issues for you in the first place. And that's environment. That's people. That's that's um that's the the surroundings you you put yourself in, but you put yourself in them because it feels that 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 chaos is is just Correct. feels good, I guess. Correct. Wow. Correct. I went through the DBT program that I went to was a group program where I would attend every Wednesday 5 hours of group therapy 
um, where we were learned, we were taught tools and recognition of emotions and learning how to essentially put a door in between our feelings and our actions, mm. make a determination on whether or not we let that door open or whether we keep that door closed. Yes. I went through this program and learned a tremendous amount, but, uh, and this program was a year long and about at the 10th month mark, I had this wildly profound epiphany that changed everything mm -hmm. for me. And it seems like the most simplistic of uh, concepts, but I felt for myself for the very first time, compassion mm. for how I ended up fucked up because I had been gaslit by myself and by my family my entire life to believe that I hadn't gone through enough mm. to justify getting to a place where I was so broken. And at that point in time, I felt compassion for myself for the first time that said, where I said, no, if anyone had gone through the set of circumstances that I had that led up to this point in my life, they could very easily have ended up as broken as I was. Mm -hmm. And that I didn't have responsibility for the things that had played up until this point right. because my brain was built on trauma, but that now that I had entered in the space mm -hmm. of understanding, it was now my responsibility yes. to how I moved forward yeah. on a go forward. And I decided that I was going to choose to have compassion and love for myself. And in that, I all of a sudden was able to start talking to myself differently. And telling yourself the, a different story. And the things that I taught myself and the things that I focused on when I hated everything about me were three things that I liked about myself. And they were the three things that Jenny gave me that I am kind, that I choose to show up with kindness to basically everyone in the world, that I chose to, I actually had um, a therapist at one point after I had been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder that told me that she felt like I had been misdiagnosed because I was too kind, mm. because it is common for people with BPD to be really harsh, to have an extremely sharp tongue, and that wasn't Ugh. something that would happen to me um, on a frequent basis. I opted for kindness in most circumstances. And so I focused on my kindness. I focused on my ability to have compassion for people mm -hmm. and to choose to not judge them without having a really good understanding of their story. Yes. Right? Because different people have so many different reasons why they have become who they yes. are. And um, 
that's so difficult to kind of integrate into um, what you're choosing to believe about people. Everything that you're saying right now is difficult, no matter if you've been in trauma or not. In a general basis, the, the, the kind of people that we are, you know, it, it is it's it's 100% being vulnerable and tra- you know transparent. Those things are difficult and hard for anybody. Like, you know, when, when you have to show up and be kind, when somebody's not being so kind to you or, or, or they're not, you know what I mean? And you have to show up with compassion and, and really see, okay, what's my part in this? Or, or all of those things are difficult regardless of the trauma. And so I commend you, number one, like that's what you're saying, like that, to be able to show up like that and to fight. Okay. Even when you talked about being autistic, that some of these things didn't come natural for you. Some of the empathy, you know, emotions didn't come natural like that. I commend you for that. That's, that's huge because golly, I'm still struggling many times with, you know, when I need to show up and be kind and not, you know, and, and not, I have to hold my tongue back or I have to, you know, and I fail, I fail. Yep. And that was, I had those three things in my arsenal and in my toolbox because they were so inherent to me um, because of just the way that I had to interact with Jenny. Mm. And so I really felt like she gave me these three things that I could like about myself when I hated everything about myself so that I could not focus on all of the ways that I hated myself so that I could focus my self-talk surrounding, you are kind, you are compassionate, you don't judge people for the th- the way that their lives have played out. But you and also have boundaries. You also have boundaries. <laughs> I, I don't know that I did at that point. But I'm saying now you do. Now you have boundaries. Being all of those three things, you can be those three things, but you still have got to have boundaries in your life. You still have got to say, okay, I can be as kind as and compassionate and loving and, and show up for you, but there's got to be boundaries at, at points, especially being in a toxic environment for so long and recognizing, okay, this is probably not going to be great. No, you're exactly correct. And um, so I would say that that boundaries, and this is like a lesson that I have learned since this time, because all of this is happening between the years, of, but between like 24 and 27 years old, right? Where I'm going through like three years, two and a half years of this very, very intensive therapy um, throughout my world where, uh, and then like on a go forward basis, that is where I really learned to understand that um, one of the most important things that you can do is protect your peace mm. once you have received peace. Yes, so, girl. Yes, 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 yes. All day to that. Yep. And so I was able to focus on the things that I liked about myself while I moved into a healing space and started healing the things that I didn't like about myself. Mm changing the way that I interact with the world, with circumstances, with situations, things that um, would curate spaces for me to dislike myself, having compassion for myself when I fucked Mm. up. Yes. Um, It's all the great. I'm just, I'm listening to you and I'm sorry, but like what you're saying to going back and and again, I I said, I didn't want to go there, but it's made so much stuff has connected the dots for me in your story. And so many things that I could see would even be a trigger for you at even, even being in the camp, even I keep looking over here because you're closer to me this way. So I feel more connected. You're on, you're on my computer screen over there. You're on my TV screen. So I just keep looking at you this way because you're closer to me, but 
it, some of these things make sense because we can still be triggered, right? We can still be triggered. Things that people say, do, or we feel, we can be triggered. Yeah. And so what I learned during this entire process is, is this, I got to a place of tremendous peace with myself, right? And it's taken a long time. I'm 37 years. I feel like I, I mostly got to a place where I was good with the human being that I had become probably by the 29, 30 years old. Mm -hmm. And it's really just been kind of sinking into this belt, into this bath of self-acceptance. But one of the things that I recognize in understanding boundaries is that I'm not everyone's cup of tea and that's okay. It's not my business whether someone chooses to like me or not like me. I am a really big personality. I'm really, really quirky when you are in um, kind of like friendly situations with me. I make noises, like I talk in different voices, um, all like you know, do really silly things because these are just personality quirks of mine. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's people's jam and sometimes it's not. But in the curation of boundaries for me, I don't interact with people who's, who I am not their cup of tea. Sure. I choose not to surround myself in those types of situations because I don't need anyone trying to convince me that I am hard to love. Yeah. You don't need anybody to convince you of what you're already convinced about. And that is loving yourself and self-accepting. So you don't need anybody else's opinion. I love that. Yep. And so it, uh, in in that particular situation, in the camp situation, I caught vibes that I was not um, someone's favorite person. And so that ca- caused me to shrink. Make it, 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 makes us, it makes us shrink a little bit or walk away or just kind of like, okay, it can trigger us. I mean, if we're being 100%, it can trigger even, I can be in the healthiest places of places and still my little girl, that little girl can sometimes be bothered. But you said you kind of like, okay, I'm going to remove myself from the situation, which is the best absolute thing that I think that you can do. Hindsight 2020, maybe it, you know, I, I don't know, but it, I get you. I got it. Yeah. So, uh, basically there was, there was just, uh, and I don't know that like that didn't happen because, um, opinions were already established, et cetera. But generally speaking, um, in this particular situation pertaining to camp, um, we were, sorry, I'm going to have to go get a charger here in just a second. But, uh, in this particular situation with camp, there were just a number of different things, components that were that came into play, right? It was the week leading up to my sister's death. And that was a very emotional space sure. for me. And I never know, we're 13 years deep at this point. Right. I never know. I, I call, uh, I liken grief to the ocean, right? And sometimes the, the water is glassy and it is clear and you're just floating along and everything feels really good. But all of a sudden, like there's a black cloud on the horizon and you're being swallowed up by 30 foot waves. Mm. um, You never know when it's going to hit, right? It's unpredictable as a storm on the ocean can be in the sense that like sometimes all of a sudden you're just whipped up and uh, being like borderline drowning in grief and you don't even know where it came from. Mm-hmm. And it's much more, 
um, the waters are much choppier in the beginning and then subsequent years, sometimes it's glass. Like sometimes there have been years where I have lovingly honored Jenny and that's the most that I needed to do. And there are years where grief just slams into me mm. and I just look at the world around me and I'm like, it's so fucking unfair mm. that I don't get to have my sister. Yeah. Um, because this wasn't the life that I had expected, right? Yeah. One, one where she isn't involved and what people don't understand who haven't experienced death of a close loved one is when someone you love deeply dies, you enter a new reality. Mm -hmm. You're in a whole different plane of existence. Overnight, overnight. World, yeah. Literally overnight where the world was one thing before and now it's completely something yes. different. Yes. And um, that can be really, really hard to adjust to. Yeah. And so sometimes it just slams into me and that was the situation. So yeah. it was a culmination of, of, of a, a few different factors that just made me feel like, okay, I can lovingly accept that maybe I'm not um, this particular person's cup of tea, but I'm not also going to push myself into that space right. and try and make people like me right. because I'm past that. Yeah. I'm so secure in myself and knowing who I am as an individual that if someone opts into not enjoying me as a person, I respect that. Yeah, you've come into the area and it, somebody had once said that basically you'll walk into a room with 100 different people and 100 different people will have a different opinion of you. And there's yep. nothing you can do to change it. Like that's their opinion. Maybe there is. Maybe there is something you can do to change it. But at the end of the day, why try to have, you know, okay, well, for you, I'm going to be this. And for you, not, not when you're secure with yourself and not when you have done the work to heal yourself and be better. And I had spent my entire life changing who I was mm. to try to fit in. Yeah. Because I had autism and I was the weird kid, I was left out. And so I spent my entire childhood watching other kids' behavior and assimilating to their version of what acceptable was in an effort to fit in. Well, not, and I, and I think even just that makes sense when you say like how important inclusivity is to you, like why it is so important to you because of all the different circumstances that you've been a part of that that's why it also, you know, hurts you to understand that somebody was feeling this way or a few people were feeling this way that because you've always, and, and I know a hundred percent. And we know in the boudoir industry that it is about being inclusive. It's about accepting everyone and any just as they are and as they come. And so I could see how that would be, you know, like, wow, okay. I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that I was projecting that. Well, and not only that, but like when I started hearing specific instances of people's experiences, I I'm sitting here looking at like the grand scheme of things going, yeah, mm -hmm. I can actually understand right. why these things were interpreted as I don't care about you. Right. I don't know you. I don't, you don't matter to me, mm -hmm. but that's far from my core values that, um, it just, 
it, I'm like sitting here going, wow, I messed up so deeply to genuinely make people feel these feelings. Mm-hmm. I recognize I did sure. make them feel feelings. There were actions that I engaged in that made them feel these things um, because of a number of different factors that were going on in sure. my life and the way that I was reacting to those outside contributors sure. um, that led me to um, curate these feelings in others. Mm-hmm. And it, it broke my heart because I did make people feel those things. Mm-hmm. That is something I did genuinely do. Um, but I think and- the important part of this too, uh, Andrea, is that you 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 recognize it because there's so many, and I think it was Chris, uh, who I love Chris to death, um, said that you're so self-aware, you know what I mean? And you are. But at the same time, if there's so many people that are not self-aware to recognize and say, hey, uh, you know, hey, nope, that's, that's your guys' problem. That, you know what I mean? Like, if you didn't feel that way, but no, you were like, let me reflect on this. Let me process this. Let me figure out how I needed to show up. And, and you accept that, which is, God, like you are a human being at the end of the day. And I'm glad you went and said what you did. And, and, you know, I'm, it's a, it's a tough situation all the way around. It really, really is a tough situation all the way around, but I'm glad that you also met it right there at the front gate. You took your time. And, 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 that, and another thing I think that people expect is that, Hey, I just need to respond right now. I just need to respond. It's like some people need time to process this. Some people, especially with what you were going through on top of that. And let me just sit with this for a while and see what my part was in this. Let me just think about this for a little while before I show up and say anything. And I, I respect you for that so much. And, and that was an important piece for me because I didn't want anyone to get the impression that I was hearing what they were saying and I was reacting to being misunderstood. Right. Being the victim or I'm going to play the victim part in this. Yes. I, I heard, and I could see that I could feel that right away. It was like, no, you really wanted to accept your part. I want, I wanted to accept my part and I wanted to let them know that, I learned from this because ultimately bad experiences um, that take place in our lives Mm -hmm. can one of two things. They can either derail us or they can create an opportunity for growth. Yes. And I was in my life to take every difficult circumstance that comes into my world and to get curious about it. And that's, I think that there's a huge difference So, you know, thinking about all of these different um, things that played out during this week, there is a difference between curiosity and rumination, Mm -hmm. right? And you live in the space where you're like, man, like thinking over, thinking over and over and over again, playing out the trauma in your head, playing out the things that are happening, wishing you had done things different, et cetera. Whereas when you approach something with curiosity, where you're not just cycling, the intention is very different, mm-hmm. right? And you are, the intention is to kind of live in this space and to relive it. Whereas moving into a place of curiosity, the intention is how can I show up different? Right. And for and me, if it's not here at this moment, then it's going to be in the next. You know what I mean? I'm going to take something from this. I'm going to grow from it. I'm going to learn from it. And I'm going to implement what I've learned in that. Yes, absolutely. And I wanted to make sure that what I was articulating to the community in this situation is that people can simultaneously 
make mistakes Mm -hmm. and mistakes were absolutely made, but that in those mistakes, you're still dealing with humans and those humans have the ability to grow from these situations. And I make sure that people knew that my intention with every bad review that I have, you know, that I ever get is an opportunity of growth for me. It is not going to be something that I am going to ruminate on. It is something that I am going to get curious about so that I can ensure that on a go forward basis, I am showing up in a way that is going to um, promote who I want to be in Mm -hmm. that future. Yes. I love all of that. I have some questions for you. I know you said your phone is going to die. I have some, I have some questions for you. Um, and, and yes, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Um, what a powerful, I think just in general, what a powerful, um, podcast. I think that you, you were right. You were right. It, It was twisted. It was twisted, but you know what? I love, I love the reason why I do this podcast is because I love the twisted. I love, uh, with that being said, I also love the growth and the twisted because I've come from, you know, places in my, my own healing and my own, my own trauma, my own shit that I have done the work as well. And I love to get to know people by their shit because it's, it's, I think it's at a moment where we feel like, okay, you know what? I'm just as fucked up as you. I can say that wholeheartedly. I am. And yet we're doing the work. That's, that's the difference between a lot of people as well is that they'll be aware and accept that there's work to be done. So, um, these are kind of spitfire questions. Okay. And I really want you to just, uh, I really want you to give me, try to give me one word. Okay. So my first question is I will no longer tolerate Probably disrespect of my boundaries. Good. Being average will. Hinder my growth. The way to get out of your own way is? Heal. Mm. My my favorite self-practices. Affirmations. Being a leader means owning up to mistakes. The last win I celebrated was alignment. Mm, girl, you got it. You're doing it. Um, my favorite question to ask somebody is. What can you teach me? Mm, okay. All right. All right. All right. I want to ask you just a couple more. Now, these ones are not one. These are not, these are not like one questions. Uh, so you can kind of, uh, you know, um, explain yourself if you'd like, or, or if you want to answer bigger, but what is your current biggest contribution to the world? Expanding the therapeutic beauty of boudoir. Mm, yes, girl. Yes, 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 yes. 
Um, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was, I was just going to say, you know, I, I fell into the boudoir industry, um, kind of by accident. Um, I was requiring additional income because I was bringing my husband home from work because of, um, pretty intensive PTSD that was affecting his work life situation. And I didn't quite make enough money um, in the corporate position that I was working at that time in order to make ends meet. And so I got a Dave job and photography was supposed to be my Dave job. And I accidentally fell into boudoir because I did just like a marathon um, situation with some friends who I asked like, will you guys let me try this out? I want to see whether it's something I like. Mm -hmm. And I loved working with women, but I am not a super feminine woman. I lean more masculine in a lot of different areas. Mm -hmm. um, I don't typically wear makeup, like the lashes that you see I have on because I was in Hawaii and I didn't want to have to like, you know, mess with makeup <laughs> in any way or form. And so I got my lashes done. Um, I generally like dress pretty plainly. Um, I'm just a little bit more of a tomboy. And so I will have people ask me, they're like, how did you end up in this? Like right. you of people where you're like glamming women up and focusing on the importance of like these sexy pictures and the way that they look and all of that good stuff. And it was because after that marathon day of spending time with friends of mine who were willing to let me try this out, I watched their lives change mm -hmm. so drastically yeah. after a boudoir session. And I got so introspective about why the hell that happened. Mm -hmm. Why could you got curious? Day, yes, I got curious. Why could in one day mm -hmm. they manage the shift in self-talk that took me 10 months of DBT to get through? Mm. Mm. And it's I like we like this would be a whole other topic because this is actually we might. I so I think we, we this is going to be like there might be a part two to this. <laughs> then there might be a part three to this. <laughs> right. Um, this is actually so I um, the the talk that you heard me do was uh, when you talked about like the topic. It, that was WPPI last year. OK. And I did. Um, I was a keynote speaker at Imaging mm -hmm. in January this last year. And. My talk was on the impact of curating a client experience that, um, or creating a cura uh, curating a client experience for impact. Mm -hmm. And I talked about what I watched Boudoir do. And I have watched countless women now cross my threshold um, and come into this space where they are talking to themselves differently. Mm. And that immediately starts making these incredible, profound shifts in their world. Yeah. And I spent so much time philosophizing on like, why the hell this happens and why sexy pictures have the ability to curate this like crazy shift in their lives. And that's what I actually did my talk on, on Im at imaging, because I believe so strongly that if, um, 
if boudoir photographers are in an intentional in the way that they build their client experience, that we can heal an entire generation, yes. maybe multiple generations of women. And I actually feel very strongly that the self-love movement that we have watched taking place over the last five years or so is in part because of boudoir. Yeah. Uh, because we have played an instrumental role in changing the self-talk of your everyday woman. Mm. And, um, and that's why I do what I do. And that is why I educate on what I educate because I believe so strongly that like treating this genre as some kind of flippant, um, super fun day of like glamour shots is doing it such deep yes. injustice that I have just gotten on this platform to talk to people as often as I can about how this can change your entire life. Yes, this is I, a self-transforming. I, 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 you know, empowerment is a great word. Empowerment is a great word, but transforming is the word that I choose to use because it can transform your inner self. Like it really can so that you can start to see what everybody else sees, you know, what we, it, it, you can start to believe and see. I love that. It's 100%. I'm on board with that. You are speaking my lingo right now for sure. Andrea, yeah. like, holy shit. Um, this has been a long one. You have been so patient. <laughs> no, I, I just enjoyed learning about you. I think, you know, when we give people the space to be, you were, you said that, and I think that this, the, the video that you did, that you are an open book and you are 100% an open book. Um, you didn't hesitate when I said, I really want to interview you. Just kind of, you were like, let's do it. Like it's twisted as fuck, but let's do it, <laughs> you know? And God, you were so honest and transparent. It, um, that, Anybody, I hope, I hope my desire is that anybody that, you know, sees this can see your heart through and through and who you are as a person, like who you strive to be, who you're, who you work to be. And, um, that, that really correlates you, you are a beautiful person, what you do, how you educate, um, I hope to, I know that you said that there, you know, I, and I'll be honest with you. I, I've wanted to be, um, I wanted to do speaking and I wanted to do some teaching and it scared the fuck out of me. Like when I started reading everything, I was like, Oh, I don't know if I, you know, could handle all of that. Um, and, and it really made me step back and really just kind of even think myself before I jump into too heavy of something. But I also hope that, um, you have something coming out soon. It sounds like you have some kind of software that you might be transitioning into and kind of getting out of the field altogether. But I think your contribution to the world of boudoir and education and teaching is so huge and impactful that sit on it a little while longer. Don't, don't make, you know, an impulsive, which we talked about decision. And I know that you probably are. I know that you're probably very much thinking about it, but, um, you have so much to give and, and, um, I hope that, you know, you continue to give that to the industry in, in whatever way you feel is best. And if it's not in big group settings and if it's just, you know, online teaching or, or whatever the case may be, I, I hope that um, you continue doing that because you are very impactful. I, oh, I really appreciate you. Um, I have had a lot of really, really beautiful uh, messages that have um, kind of hit my DMs and people reaching out who have been saying similar things. And I don't know what all of this sure. looks like on my end. Sure. You're exactly correct. 
Um, I am going to be launching myself headfirst into the tech industry here before too long. Um, but it is, uh, I love this community with a deep, profound longing almost where I am just, it's, it's always been so close to my heart to help encourage people to understand the level of impact that they can have in this world. And that is ultimately always what I wanted to do. Once sure. I got into a place of healing, my goal in the world was to leave it better than I arrived in it. Yeah. And that is that is the the root basis of everything that I do is wanting to curate a better world than the one that I came into. Yeah. And I'm going to keep doing that. And yeah. I don't know if it is going to be, um, you know, headfirst into education or, hey, maybe I end up with a podcast someday or yeah. I'm writing self-help book. Yeah. Or, and you're writing that book. That's that right. I love that. I love it. I love it. I appreciate you, your time, your, your knowledge, your, your, the experience, the openness of your heart. I really, really do appreciate you. And, um, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I thank you. Thank you for having me on, for hearing me, for giving me an opportunity and a space for people to get to know me better. I appreciate you for sure. so much. For sure. For sure. To many more conversations, hopefully to come. I would love that. All right. All right, lady. Well, we're out. That's it for Between the Sheets with this episode with Andrea Mendoza. You guys, please check it out. We will drop all of the links of where you can find her, where you can see her education, where you can see what she's done, her website, all of that good stuff. Instagram, we will be dropping that in the links. So please like, subscribe, and show some love. Be kind, be courteous, have compassion and forgiveness and grace. Love one another. You guys, we are out.